0: You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a
1: cupboard? Hello and welcome to Wonder Cupboard, the show that asks the question, what if science is one colour, but to me it's a different colour than it is to you, and we both don't know that it's different because we both call it science? Uh, My name's Ian Bridgman...
0: My name is Elena Falco.
1: And uh, what are we talking about this week, Elena? Well, it's peer review week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, party cannon, <laughs> <Woo>! streamers, <laughs> dancing people.
0: Yeah, it's time to send flowers to your favorite peer reviewer. Except you can't do that because you're not supposed to know who your peer reviewer is. Woo! Woo! So yeah, so it's peer review week.
1: As uh, you all know.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, come on. It's like, it's up there with Shark Week, right? <laughs> Everyone knows about it. You know, all the famous fictional peer reviewers are dredged up and celebrated. <laughs> all those TV series about peer review get reruns. You, yeah. know, you know, you know how it is.
1: I'm particularly looking forward to appearing on my float at the peer review parade. That's quite difficult to say, it's especially a when you
0: time. Pure parade. Pure <laughs> the... parade. Just sounds like it's pureed mm.
1: doesn't it? Yeah, so that's what I'm looking forward to.
0: What's your float going to be like?
1: Um it's uh basically to represent double blind peer reviewing. Uh-huh. We're going to make sure that everyone's wearing goggles so they can't see it.
0: That is uh very conceptual. Thanks. Mm. Um And by the way, some of you might be wondering, why does peer review get a week? I mean, women get one day. So why is peer review more important? Well, I don't have... It's seven
1: times more important. It's
0: seven times, exactly. And also, I mean, if you use that kind of rationale, it, it kind of goes wrong because breastfeeding gets a week. And there aren't seven times more breastfeeding people than women, right? Like, that's not possible. Mm. So this whole, like, you get a week, you get a day, you get a year situation is just really complicated to untangle. Like, other things that get a week, interfaith harmony, good. That seems appropriate to me. Mm -hmm. Something called idiopathic hypersomnia Well, awareness, but as in awareness is not part of the disease. It's just, Mm. that's the awareness week. Which, you know, I'm sure it's very difficult for people who have it. It's a rare disease. But a week? Like, there aren't that many people who suffer from it. Then the dairy goat gets a week. (laughs) Um, Well, mental illness gets a week. Good. And also, (laughs) I discovered there is such thing as fix-a-leak week.
1: (laughs) Is that like a plumbing, a um, plumbing week?
0: Yeah, you don't just get vegetables who have been broken and, <laughs> and end them up. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's it's something like that. Like you're supposed to look at leaks in your roof and try to fix them. Fine. Something like that. Also, I discovered that you can get a year. I just didn't know that, to be honest with you. And... Very strange things have got the wrong year. Like 2013 was the year of quinoa. Oh, yeah. Uh, 2008, potatoes, which I can see because they're a staple food for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Sure. But yeah, it just seems a bit arbitrary. 2018 is not the year of anything. Like it's the first one in a row of like 20 years that were dedicated to something. 2018 is just meh and oh. nobody cares. However, 2019 has got. Three things that it's dedicated to. First one being moderation. (laughs)
1: Lovely. Don't go too wild. Don't go too wild in 2019.
0: (laughs) Uh, Second one being the periodic table.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the third one being indigenous languages, which allows me to seamlessly segue into today's topic, languages and peer review.
1: That was seamless.
0: Thank you. So why does language matter? I hear you say, data is data is data, right? Like data speaks for itself, except data never speaks for itself. Scientists speak for data. And scientists don't speak the language of the stars or any other such bullshit you might have read on um, <clears throat> insert pop culture slash science website, which I'm not going to mention because otherwise we'll get in trouble. Scientists speak, well, it's it's complicated, and, and we'll kind of untangle it throughout this episode. And issues that surround language have had a major impact on things like avian influenza and bias in research. It all comes down to peer review and the diversity of languages spoken in the research community. So let's take a step back and have a look at what peer review is. Peer review is... A process that is used to evaluate scientific claims
1: yeah so if someone comes up in, to you in the playground and says oh yeah yeah so my uncle gave me a special super nintendo and um when you play on it you can actually play as sonic in mario you don't just go oh okay great what you, the next question is right show me yeah and you know that's what needs to happen in order for scientific claims to be, you don't just take it on trust. Yeah. You, you, you go and check it. Yes. Otherwise, people could just be making stuff up.
0: Exactly. Obviously, peer reviewers can't really go to your lab and check things for themselves directly as no. such. But what they can do is they can check your methods. They can check your deductions if they are sound um they can check that you have enough data to back up the claims that you're making
1: and they can even check that the data makes sense yes it's 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 relatively easy now to see whether data has been made up yeah that sort of thing
0: yes it still happens mm. um but yeah that is supposed to reduce that kind of phenomenon and incidentally plagiarism is also one of the things that is prevented by peer review not not by the peer reviewers themselves, but the, by the process of peer review, because journals check papers for plagiarism. So that's also quite an important role that journals have. Yeah, the, the aim of peer review is to publish on a journal, mm. to have the paper published on a journal. So full disclosure, I have worked in peer review for years and until two weeks ago. Now I have stopped and I will start my PhD soon, but I know quite a lot about it. My last job was in a publishing team at the Royal Society, and it entailed handling papers going through peer review. Now, peer review is secretive by nature. That is because in order to avoid bias and preserve objectivity as much as possible, journals tend to put a screen between the authors of the paper and exam and those who assess them. Sometimes this screen is entirely dark for both sides, a bit like your float Sometimes it's like those one-way mirrors that they put in fictional police stations where the police officers can see inside an interrogation room, but those who are answering questions only see a reflective surface.
1: That's awesome. More science should be like cop shows. (laughs) Like, okay, this guy's come in. He's the usual kind of scientist, white, Uh, (laughs) mid-40s. He's got something to say about sodium, but I'm not sure it checks out you be bad cup, I'll be good cup. And we're going to get the truth out of this, man.
0: Do you think that it would be um, good to give peer review- potential peer reviewers a badge and the uniform to encourage them to do that?
1: I think so. I yeah. think so. And then there's the opportunity for the chief to go, hand in your badge, this has got too personal. <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's great.
0: I love that. <laughs> yeah, so going back to... Um, the issue at hand when you just have a screen that is entirely opaque that is called a double blind while in the cop scenario we are talking about a single blind so Uh editors and reviewers know who the authors are editorial staff such as myself up to two weeks ago can see everything so they can see all the names all the interactions between these people all the reports all the data, everything. Um, They are the custodians of the mechanism of peer review. In fact, in my first job, I was handling double-blind peer review, and part of my duties was to delete any information from the paper that could give away to the reviewers the identity of the authors. This is because personal characteristics of the authors may influence the verdict. Things like gender, gender, country of provenance or even just their names because they may know each other uh, this is about reviewers not being able to see the authors while the flip side is the fact that authors don't know who the reviewers are leaves the reviewers free of expressing their views without fear of someone showing up on on their doorstep with an axe or some other super weapon that they have developed in their secret lab somewhere <laughs> And sometimes in single blind situations, it gets personal. There are rivalries and conflicts of interest to be kept into account, but also differences in scientific views. Scientists who work on the same thing know each other. And by the way, I've had loads of authors trying to guess who the reviewers were, especially when reviews were unfavorable, obviously, and not one got it right ever.
1: So they came to you and they said... Look, I've had an unfavorable review. I know it's my arch nemesis, Dr. X. Yes. And it was not. It was Mr. Y.
0: It's, yeah. Well, not Mr. It has it's to be Dr. Dr. Y. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, yes.
1: it Could be Professor Y.
0: Could be Professor Y. Mm. Very good. Um, but yeah, that happens. Um, but that's because scientists who are people just kind of scam the... The, the range of people they know and go, which of these people could be the culprit of, for this report? Well, really, they should consider the fact that they don't know everyone. They know a lot of people in that field, but not everyone.
1: And in fact, that is a great example of why peer review is done in the first place, because mm. that shows the kind of bias that you can yeah. exhibit if you're so laser guided on the fact that it's my arch scientific nemesis. Yeah. It must be him. That's confirmation bias.
0: Exactly. So, yes, that's, that's very well put. So, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll get into it a bit more and show you how it works. So, pretend you're a researcher, have done your experiments or observations or whatever. Then you write it all up. You write the methods you've used, the exact analysis you've run on your data, and the conclusions you've come to as well as the references in which you list the sources of information other than your study.
1: Okay, I've done that. Well well done. I'm really role-playing this. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I did a whole scientific thing right now. Carry on.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you want to tell us what it is about? No, because I can't
1: think of something quick enough. Carry (laughs) on.
0: (laughs) So, you pop a bottle of whatever fizz you can afford in your grant which can range from basic bubbly by little to le super fancy by waitress, depending on your career stage. <laughs> and then you start looking for places to publish, not realizing that is a whole new journey you're embarking on. First, you have to format your article according to the guidelines of the journal you're submitting to. In some cases, you must provide the full data set you worked on, which... Sounds terrifying. Like, I can imagine it must be something like showing up butt naked at a first date. And in fact, a lot of scientists are quite um, shy about their data. Let's put it that way. And so they kind of try to say, oh, but perhaps I'll show you my data once, you know, you said you like my paper. <laughs> or, you know, once you published, you know, I, I don't show my data before publication. Um, it gets sometimes a bit awkward. Mm. Um, But I understand that. It just sounds like a really difficult thing to do. Anyway, say editorial staff is happy with the length and look of your paper, then academic editors take it on and assign reviewers to it. Normally, there are at least two. Sometimes they they can go up to nine or ten, depending on how much agreement there is. They will judge your paper. Sometimes suggest revisions, and once all the revisions are done and everyone is happy, send it off for publication. Or oh, they can reject it.
1: So the reviewers can reject it?
0: The reviewers recommend rejection. Okay. That's actually more accurate. And the academic editor, editors plural, normally that's the, there's, um, there's a double-tiered system by which you've got two editors um, that work on the same paper in different arrangements, depending on the journal, but normally there are, there's more than one editor, uh, then they make the decision. But they kind of have to follow what the reviewers say, as in if you've got three reviewers and all three say reject, you need to have really strong reasons to accept it. Mm. Like no one ever does that because it seems kind of pointless to review a paper if you're not going to listen to the reviewers. mm mm-hmm. So the rejection rate changes dramatically depending on journals, with the top tier ones like nature and science being in a 90% rejection rate. The judgment is based on the results, of course, but also on the method used, the ethics, because you can't accept results of an unethically conducted study. doesn't matter how important they are. Uh, the relevance to where the field is at that particular moment. So is that actually new information? Is that something that will advance the field right now? And what is commonly referred to in Anglophone journals as, and I quote, the English, meaning that the paper must be easily readable and wouldn't require a lot of language editing. Now, this is what we're talking about today. How much power does the English have on science, as it turns out, quite a lot. Now, as I said, language quality is literally one of the first things anglophone journals look at. If a paper is not in fluent English, it will be sent back to the authors, advising them to look for an editor. If they can't afford an editor, and here I'm talking about an editor, not as in an academic editor, but a language editor, someone who works exclusively on things like grammar and syntax and vocabulary if they can't afford it or for any reason they can't fulfill the condition the paper is simply not considered this means that we may be missing out on some good science because the authors can't write influent fluent English of course the authors that are rejected because of the English can publish on local journals in their native language But information published in local journals is virtually non-existent from the perspective of the community because it is assumed that all important information is in English. And because more people in the community can speak English, at least as a second language, than any given local language, vital information is lost. I'll give you an example. In January 2004, avian influenza had been detected in pigs by Chinese scientists. This was an alarming development because pigs could have been a jumping-off platform for the virus, which could then easily move to humans. The study was published in a small Chinese journal, in Chinese. No one cared. Until the World Health Organization found out about it in August, so eight months later, and they had to rush to have it translated. At that point, people were already dying of bird flu. In an epidemic, knowledge sharing is essential. We also have to acknowledge the fact that the top journals are all in English, published either in the US or in the UK. So as well as missing out on good science, we are also holding back those scientists who can't publish well and get that nature paper in their CV, which may open doors for them. And by this, I mean they could get more money for their research. This mechanism may contribute to grants not going to those parts of the world where English is not the first language, which would skew research efforts towards trying to solve problems that mostly affect English-speaking countries. So if this is true, then something as technical as readability becomes an ethical problem. Additionally, and this is true particularly for environmental sciences, countries where English is not the first language are underrepresented in the academic literature. So no one worries about problems that are local to them. This has an impact, for instance, when informing efforts to preserve biodiversity. Information about organisms and habitats in non-English-speaking countries ends up being overlooked. For instance, literature on the fairy Pita, which is a lovely, bright-coloured mm. bird. Um, I'll put a photo on Instagram because I have a weak spot for cute birds. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of that, sorry.
1: <laughs> Our Instagram account is at Podcast. So you can find a, a cute bird there.
0: Yes. the so information on this very cute bird is available only in traditional Chinese. So it was not included in the assessment of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Indirectly, the tyranny of English contributes to the overrepresentation of positive results as well. This is how it happens. Scientists are pressured to publish well which means publishing in high-impact journals, such as Nature or Cell. These journals only publish articles that display a high degree of novelty, meaning that they present new findings. So negative results, so when scientists set out to uh, show that something is happening, but they find out that that's not happening. And replication studies, which are studies that try to, they're basically remakes of previous studies so they recreate the same study and see how it goes and this is very important to make sure that the result obtained by the previous study is actually sound these studies don't end up in the top publications
1: because they're boring
0: yes essentially but, yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> but useful yeah
0: these journals which published novelty stuff are also written in english And as they don't publish negative results and replications, these end up being pushed down to local journals in local languages, disappearing from the radar of the English-speaking community. And as we saw, information in English is simply easier to find. And English being the official language of the scientific community, most researchers don't even look for information in other languages. This is also for practical reasons. In order to scour all literature, including the non-English journals, you need to speak a lot of languages, Most people manage two or three, like if that. In Anglophone countries, the number goes down to one for historical reasons that I'll explain later. So positive results are easier to find. This in turn means that positive results end up constituting a bigger proportion of the available literature than negative and replication studies. And that is bad um, because it's giving us a deformed picture of what we know about
1: any given subject. It's like when you look at someone's Instagram account and you look at it. In fact, you're you're scrolling through your Instagram feed and all you see are your friends having a fantastic, wonderful time. They're on holiday. They're eating an amazing thing. And you get the sense that, you know, in your own life, you might just be kind of feeling a bit crap. Your hair's gone wrong. You're doing nothing on a Sunday except watching bad telly. And you might get the impression oh, hang on, all my friends are having an amazing time and they're so successful and they're wonderful, they might all also be having crap Sundays. Mm -hmm. But because you're looking at Instagram and they're only publishing their best photos and the most exciting things, you get this skewed view that you're rubbish and all your friends are amazing. Yeah. Um, And it's the same in science. If all they're publishing is the amazing, groundbreaking, exciting stuff, you get this skewed view.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. So that's, that's a problem. But there are subtler issues at play. Even if a paper is written in perfect English, there are cultural differences in the use of language that may have an impact on whether it makes it a publication. One of the issues has to do with how confidently you present your results. There is a cultural difference in how direct people are when writing up their studies. Finns, for instance tend to soften up their language more than Dutch, American and British scientists. So instead of saying, we discovered that, they might say, we have gathered evidence that points towards blah, blah, blah. Which to them is the same, but to a, say, American reviewer, it sounds as if they're not very confident about the results. Reviewers often remark on this kind of thing, saying that the tone needs to be adjusted. There is also a difference in arguing style that comes from what you were taught in school, which differs by country and culture. Specifically, in some countries, such as Britain, authors normally start with the most important information at the top of the article and then go into details throughout the paper. This is also seen in anglophone news outlets, for instance. You give the actual news on the first lines, then add some detail, then finally the background. Elsewhere, for instance, in Finland, again, and in Czech Republic, authors tend to start by listing facts and building up to a conclusion, which is the most important part of the paper. English-speaking reviewers assume, without realising it, that the meat of the argument is at the beginning. If the beginning is simply a setup, then they will be underwhelmed and think that the paper is of little value. Because they go, you know, if that's the thing they put on first, I I can only imagine what the background sounds like. Another anglophone habit, which applies more to the social sciences like uh, sociology or philosophy, is that of summing up the whole argument at the beginning of whatever piece of academic writing, be it an article or a book chapter. So they start by saying, "In this article, we start from this and continue by saying that and conclude that," and then they flesh out the argument. Czech and Finnish authors find it patronizing, and for what it's worth, this Italian agrees
1: yeah well this brit thinks that you know what you're talking about and doesn't want to make a fuss (laughs) nice weather we're having
0: (laughs) that's very british of you thank you so okay this is actually a bit of a pet peeve of mine i I will indulge
1: (laughs) 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 welcome to eleanor's pet peeve corner
0: I want to jingle for this.
1: I can't make you one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'll make you one. Okay. Elena's pet peeves. <laughs> uh, okay, so why is this a pet peeve of mine? First of all, spoilers. Like, to me, an argument is like a magic trick. You set up a difficult question, start by saying all the answers found so far and why you think they're wrong. So go, oh no, this is worse than I thought. How will our hero find their way out? Then you wrestle with the facts and interpretations. And then at the end, ta-da! They give you their answer. They being the author Mm. who is doing the argument. Summing up everything at the beginning would be like going to a magic show and then just hearing a voice going, Ladies and gentlemen, you will witness today wonders never seen. Mr. Magic Guy, chained underwater, after looking like he's about to drown and turning a tins a bit purple, will finally get out of the tank unscathed. And I know that for a fact, because you won't see this live. It's a recording. Everything is fine. I mean, that's really boring. Who wants to see that? Secondly, arguments often rely on subtleties which just can't be conveyed in a summary. So really the summary at the beginning of the argument is just a collection of vague words I have no use for. So there you go. That's it. That's Eleanor's pet peeves ending.
1: (laughs) Join us again next time on Eleanor's Pet Peeves Corner. (laughs) Now try and redo that jingle you just made up.
0: (laughs) Eleanor's pet peeves.
1: I think you did a good job. Thank you.
0: So anyway, these different styles may end up in misguided assessments of papers. Especially if you consider the fact that reviews and editors are academics, and academics are insanely busy. They might look for shortcuts in a first assessment of a paper before going in depth. And a shortcut in this case is looking for interesting interesting information where you think you're more likely to find it. If you're an English speaker, that would be at the beginning where your Czech colleague thought he'd just put the general framing of the problem. So he won't even make it to the end and completely miss the point of the paper. Now, we've bashed English as this terrible despot that is destroying science. That's not entirely true. Like, having a shared language makes it possible for researchers to talk to each other, which they wouldn't be able to do without a common language. The alternative, translating all literature in all languages and expect researchers to show up to conferences with a few dozen interpreters each, seems impractical. Everyone studies the one language and that's it. That obviously gives native speakers an unfair advantage, so we need to find ways to compensate for this. But why is it English? Well, with the first common language of science, this was not a problem, In the Middle Ages, all the way up until the 17th century, Latin was the main language for written scholarship. And of course, no one was a native Latin speaker. So everyone with an education was on the same footing. So in terms of spoken languages, people typically knew a few different languages. So obviously people wouldn't have conversations in Latin, which I wish my Latin teacher in secondary school had -hmm. been aware of. Because we were made to talk in Latin that was meant for writing. Just bizarre. Anyway, in the 17th century, Galileo started to mix things up by publishing some of his works in Italian in order to appeal to local patrons.
1: That's typical Galileo.
0: I know, right? He was such a fiddler. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not the word I'm looking for. (laughs) So yeah, so Newton published the Principia in Latin, but the optics in English. Things started to change a little bit. And this sparked a trend of scholars writing in their own native tongue, which frankly sounds like madness. (laughs) Like works in English, French, Dutch, Italian, German, and other European languages started to appear. German was the dominant language, but not as pervasive as English is now. So it wasn't the only one a movement towards a unified language started to appear. Conveniently, in 1887, Polish doctor Ludwig L. Zamenhof invented uh, Esperanto, a language that is a pastiche of several others and is meant to be easy to learn. So obviously no one is a native Esperanto speaker, so it could be a good lingua franca for science. Over the years, it gained and still has a militant following. At the time, people in the scientific community were pushing for its use, amongst which a Nobel Prize winner, Willem Ostwald, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. It never quite took hold, even though advocacy for this never ceased. And in fact, you can still join like Esperanto-speaking groups, and there are still people who are trying to make it the main language that people should use with people who do not speak their own native tongue.
1: If you want to have a very brief go with Esperanto, Google Translate will translate things into Esperanto. (laughs) How accurate it is? I have no idea because I don't speak Esperanto. (laughs) But um, you can have a go and see what your words would look like were you able to read (laughs) and write in Esperanto.
0: So how did this happen? Why is English now the universal language? for science the events that imposed english as a universal language are actually quite recent during world war one two alliances were fighting against each other the central powers whose strongest members were germany and austria-hungary were fighting against the Triple entente britain france and russia so scientists were obviously involved Uh, helping the war effort with their inventions. After the war won by the Triple Entente, the British and French academies started to shun research written in German. New international bodies were started that excluded German speakers altogether. Uh, So they just wouldn't accept papers in German. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the United States were becoming monolingual through a different process. After entering the war in 1917 alongside the Entente, the US started hating Germans as well. So in those states where German was spoken as a second language, mainly Iowa, Ohio and Nebraska, it was suddenly outlawed. So by 1923, more than half the country wasn't allowed to speak German freely not in public spaces or over the phone, and it wasn't taught in schools anymore. From that generation onwards, Americans grew up in a monolingual country. The fact that German wasn't taught anymore also pushed people to um, stop learning other languages as well. So people who were learning French in school or Spanish stopped as well. So everyone was just speaking English. Finally, when Hitler rose to power in 1933, a lot of scientists fled the country and went to the US, where they struggled with the new language. Hitler wouldn't even let foreign students in, further isolating the German scientific community. After World War II, the Soviet Union rose in the ranks of international science to the point that in the 50s and 60s, around 25% of science was published in Russian. So it was the second... It's a heck of a lot. Yeah, it was the second biggest uh, linguistic community Uh, within science. Americans at that point were leading the way in science and just wouldn't learn any other language or probably just didn't want to. So if you were a scientist and wanted a wide readership, you had to publish in English or in Russian. And if you were from a Western country, using Russian as a second language would basically mark you out as a communist at that point. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, Americans became more important from a cultural point of view uh, worldwide, and they uh, started setting the standards for the production of scientific knowledge as well. So what now? <laughs> um, we don't really know how to solve these problems. There, There is no clear uh, strategy. Some people say that scientists should just learn English and get on with it. But this is not a very inclusive way of dealing with the problem. Especially considering that scientists from countries like China and Japan, which are huge hubs of scientific research, struggle a lot with English because they just don't learn it in school. So it's kind of difficult to get to the point where you're decided you want to be a scientist and you have to learn a new language from scratch. And you have to be proficient enough that you can write up your own results in English.
1: Because no one else is going to do it for you.
0: No. <laughs> it's, it's really hard for them. And we can't just like ignore this and just tell like, that, such a large portion of the world scientists to just get on with it. Uh, and we're just missing out. And now, the references. So, for a framing of the issue of language and peer review... You can start from a couple of important articles. One of them is standardization versus diversity. How can we push peer review research forward by Karen Shashok, who is a translator, published on Medscape General Medicine. Um, And languages are still a major barrier to global science by Tatsuya Mano, Juan González Varro, William Sutherland... And it's published on PLOS Biology. They're both free to read online. If you want to get more into the cultural subtleties of it, you can read an article called A Bit of Culture by Joy Burrow bernish Published on The Right Stuff. And right is spelled like the pun way. (laughs) I guess it's about writing. Very clever. Yes. Finally, if you're interested in the history of it, there's one uh, American historian that has written a lot about the history of languages in the sciences. His name is Michael D. Gordon. A good place to start, or if you just want a general overview, is an essay that he published on E.ON called Absolute English. But he, he wrote books about it and papers, so you can look up those as well.
1: Great. And all those references are on our website at wondercover.com. So if you found it tough frantically scribbling them as you listen to this, maybe on a train, scrolling them onto a train window, <laughs> attracting the attention of the British Transport Police, or indeed your local transport police, indeed. Uh, fear not. You can go on com and see them. You can also get in touch with us if you want to. There's lots of ways of doing it. Uh, we love to hear feedback and we love to hear fun and interesting science stories which might be good jumping off points for future episodes you can email us hello at dot you can get us on twitter at wonder Cupboard. you can find us on facebook by searching for wonder Cupboard. and you can also find us on instagram where you will see amongst other things pretty pictures of birds that's at wonder Cupboard podcast <laughs> um so that's it for this week just to put our money where our mouth is, we're now going to do this entire podcast again in Italian. Ciao, benvenuti su Wondercovered. Mi chiamo Ian. Mi
0: chiamo Elena e questa volta parliamo della settimana della Peer Review. Peer Review! Uh, mandate dei fiori al vostro Peer Reviewer. Anzi, non mandateli perché non dovete sapere come si chiama
1: Wonder Cupboard.